There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth shall set you free! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Great moments are born from great opportunity. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of the On Justice podcast. I'm your host, John Fisher, with my partner, Jordan Redavid. We have a special guest with us today. Actually, this is a returning guest, uh, Mitch Jackson, Jackson Wilson out there in California, um, somebody that we, we had on the show very early on back, I think it was in May of last year. So almost a little over a year coming back on the show. So Mitch, welcome back. Uh, glad to have you here as always. John and Jordan, it's good to be back. Yeah, time flies when you're having fun, right? Congratulations, by the way, on all the success your firm's having on behalf of your clients. I think that's amazing. Thank well you. Well done. Thank you. I appreciate Thank that. You. So listen, it's been, you know, we, 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 you came on last time. We talked about Web 3.0, virtual reality, the law, the metaverse. And we've kind of seen, I mean, an explosion, you know, obviously relatively later, but in the last year in terms of AI involvement in the law, some good, some bad with the law. And we'll talk about, you know, some of the lawyers that, you know, get the fake citations. But, you know, <laughs> we're seeing this progression. And I think, um, you know, as it integrates with the law, you know, I think everybody's talking about it. I mean, that's you've kind of seen that that happen, haven't you, Mitch, in your practice? Yeah, you know, it's exciting. You're talking to someone that was around when the fax machine was the was the most high-tech device in the office. It changed <laughs> everything, especially when we when we used to exchange jury instructions, you know, hundreds of pages of jury instructions physically in the mail or by delivery to the fax machine. Fast forward to today, AI is changing everything. I mean, just like in my opinion, web3 in the metaverse this is an exciting time, and I think the lawyers that embrace AI, the businesses, the professionals that utilize AI, AI technology correctly are the ones that are positioning themselves for success moving forward, and the ones that don't are going to be looking back in about five years, kicking themselves in the backside. So, yeah, I'm all in. I'm excited, and that's why I'm here. Yeah, no, it, it's it's exciting. We have um, – Jordan will know this. Some of the – what is it? We have co-counsel. We started implementing yeah, – co-counsel – by case text have you experimented with it or not so case text is you know that online company that uh, publishes statutes rules and case law they have sure. for years and now they put out their co-counsel ai tool subscription-based and they are able to use a chat gpt interface type to query <clears throat> anything you want from you know what are the elements of a cause of action to what are some good questions I should ask in a depot on this type of issue? Have you experimented with that at all? So I have, and unless I'm mistaken, I believe I'm a brand ambassador for the company, just so you know, <laughs> full disclosure, everybody. But I, I played around with different platforms, mm -hmm. the AI component of the different platforms. Um, Tom Martin of LawDroid also has uh, a platform out that incorporates AI into what you just said. I'm a big fan of what he and his platform are doing. And, um, and I've always been upfront. I, you know, just because I'm a brand ambassador for somebody doesn't mean that's the only company that I'm recommending. What's interesting and what I've noticed, and I'm sure you guys will agree, is while AI is saving us a lot of time with either doing research, with um, uh, generating new ideas when it comes to jury selection, which is what I've been using it for, and we can talk about that if you want, we also want to do our due diligence. We also want to double down and make sure that the, uh, the feedback that it's sharing with us is accurate. It's relevant to what we need done. 
and is going to help us in the, in the end provide a better client experience that allows us to get better results for our clients. So short answer, long answer to a short question is yes, I've played around with it and a few other platforms. I like the way the technology is going. Right. Can, can yeah, I, I think, oh, go ahead, John. No, I was, well, I mean, you finish yours, but I do want to, because obviously I, jury selection is very important to me. So I do want to see how you're implementing AI in your jury selection, but um, wait till Jordan, I guess if you had a follow up to that, then we'll ask about the jury selection. Please. No, no, let's let's hear about it because what I, one of the things I was going to ask you was I think everybody's first step over the bridge is querying about a legal research question because that's mm -hmm. as lawyers, especially us in litigation, that's what we're accustomed to having to do. But I think there's a lot more utility to the tools and you just mentioned jury selection. So I was curious to hear about that too. Sure. So what we're doing is before we went live, we we're talking about a couple of cases that that we're all handling, not together, but separate cases. And uh, we have a couple of cases coming up for trial where I want to get a better feel in a conservative verdict on a case where I'll be asking for substantial substantial money damages on a wrongful death case. What are the what are the bells and whistles? What are the strings that I need to pull? What's on the minds of this type of uh, jury pool? And while I've been trying cases for 37 years, I'm really good at picking juries. I think that's the reason I win my cases. What I wanted to do is leverage uh, GPT-4, chat GPT and the paid version is GPT-4 to try to get questions that I need to be incorporating into my voir dire, into my jury selection. And so we're asking it, we're training the system to be an expert when it comes to human factors, psychology, sociology, when it comes to being an expert trial lawyer graduating from a top university, what type of questions, what type of open-ended questions can we ask our jury panel to get a, be a better feel for, you know, all of the above? And what we're doing is we're incorporating into our query, into our prompt, local events, um, different breaking news stories coming out of those particular counties and cities. And it's coming up with some really interesting open-ended questions that, frankly, I hadn't thought about to really allow the jurors to tell me more about themselves, which indirectly shares with me the value, uh, the factors, the issues I need to focus on when it comes time to introducing monetary evidence of monetary damages and fast forward to my closing argument, what I need to focus on to maximize and empower this particular jury to award the damages that my title, that my client's entitled to under the law. So it, you know, what's interesting about GPT-4 or any of these chat engines is you can say, give me 50 open-ended questions regarding your last response. And out of those 50 questions that it generates, what, in about 15 seconds, mm -hmm. inevitably there are three or four that we just haven't thought of before. It doesn't matter how many cases you've tried. It doesn't matter how much experience you have in the courtroom. You're going to get information that you haven't thought about that you can then follow up on, whether it's with your team, old school way, or you dive back in. This is an interesting concept, response or open-ended question number 15. You know, Share 10 more questions following up on the who, what, when, where, why, and how aspects of this particular question. So you can dive as deep as you want. You can prepare as much as you want for you know, a jury for, for jury selection. And we all know normally the lawyers that work the hardest and prepare the best are the ones that come out at top when it when it comes to trying cases. Yeah. 
You know, that, that's interesting. I never even thought about its application uh, to the jury selection. Because, you know, Jordan and I have worked with other companies where we've done, like, empirical studies where they take an issue or some certain facts and they put it across basically a, a wide spectrum of individuals and get back their feedback. And then we use mm-hmm. that to kind of see what are the sticking points, what are things we need to ask about, who's our ideal jury. And some of the times, I mean, it was ab- obscure as... I remember it was like who watches the show Criminal Minds, right? And they they had broken it down to show why that was important to know whether it was or was. The other one I think was I forget the movie where they were on the airplane and they came back like six years later. I forget the name of that that, but that was one. And I asked the jury that show of hands who watches the show, who you know, Mm -hmm. and they were jurors. I think we didn't want, and you know, so to have an an application Mm -hmm. in AI that can run that through and you can go like, like you said, here are these three questions. I didn't think about them, you know, run a query, you know, go deep dive into that. I think that's great because I have put in information about like an opening statement or closing argument and they have given some gems things that like the way they word it where I'm like, man, am I going to have a job? You know, am I, you know, obviously as a trial lawyer, I think our skills are a little bit different, but I mean, I mean, what they were coming up with was like heartfelt, uh, like not, not emotional from like a golden rule standpoint, but enough to, to really hone down on your client's damages. And I, and I think I might've taken small snippets of that. Cause I don't think you can take all of yeah. it, but I think you can, it's like anything, take what, you know, someone else's stuff, make it your own. And I think that if you're having success in AI doing that for jury selection, I'm, I think we're going to probably try to, to see that as well. It's just, I, I didn't even think about that. Well, you know, in the past, I would, I would reach out to Ann Miller, who's an expert on metaphors. And Ann's helped me win million-dollar cases with some of the metaphors that she shared with me over a quick, you know, five-minute phone call the night before closing argument, for example. Something happens in trial, and I'm like, oh, I need to kind of pivot a little bit. I'll tell you right now, with this type of technology, with the prompts, we can go back in, and once you get that that answer or response that I've early that I've already described, you can then come back and say, "Listen, rewrite an approach to addressing this issue with the jury, and incorporate into each open-ended question a different metaphor, a different story component." And then what it does is it gives you some different ways of asking an open-ended question while incorporating an empowering metaphor into the question. So whether the juror understands it or not, you're conditioning them throughout jury selection, opening statement, during the course of the trial, and through closing argument. You're actually in conditioning them and empowering them and giving them memorable metaphors to share back during jury deliberations that they can repeat in front of everyone else to help remind everybody what the real issues are, what the real goal is, what the purpose of being a juror is, and the significant positive impact their verdict can have on the local, national, and even sometimes global communities. So that's that's what we're doing is just diving deeper. And like you said, we're, we're allowing ChatGPT to plant seeds in our minds during preparation that gives us new ideas and approaches. And frankly, it saves us a lot of time too. I think that's the most important thing is it saves us time and allows us to do a better job. We're doing the same thing when it comes to uh, client communications, template letters, template emails. We're doing the same thing when it comes to a potential medical malpractice case or product liability case coming into the office. I thought our templates were really good. I'm some, it's something I've really prided myself on over the years. We pumped all of these into we've created private data sets and we can talk about that. 
And we've allowed uh, GPT-4 to really clean up our office templates so that they're more personal, they're more effective, they're more to the point. They incorporate metaphors and storytelling oftentimes in our initial correspondence to prospective clients. It just makes everything better. But like you said, we do need to preserve right now. We need to keep the human factor involved because I think we add what it gives us. We add to that our own personalities, mm -hmm. our own firm personality, uh, goals, needs, whatever it may be. And that's how you can take technology, create a product, add your human personality to it, and then put it out to the world. That's what we're doing. It's working really, really well. But people need to be care careful when they're doing legal research because with the last couple of U.S. Supreme Court case decisions, I actually took the, you know, 80 or 90 page opinion. I fed it into one of our GPT-4 data sets, asked it to summarize it and analyze it. And it often, well, two out of three times, it got the final outcome, the final conclusion wrong. So, you know, while its analysis was spot on, uh, its conclusion was different than what the U.S. Supreme Court rules. So we still have a ways to go when it comes to research. Mm -hmm. But you and I both know as soon as we incorporate auto AI, auto GPT into what we're talking about, it's going to train and fix and get that result tapping into current, you know, uh, uh, search engine technology, current databases to be spot on and even better probably than, you know, the traditional legal research that we're doing. So it's an interesting time to be a lawyer. It's an interesting time to be alive, for sure. You mentioned I'm something. Gonna, I'm going to keep my answer shorter. I'm sorry. No, no, that. no. It's good. No, it's, you listen, gotta, you're the guest of honor, yeah, man. You, People you have, want to hear from you. You have the wealth of knowledge. I mean, I'm here to learn as well, so it's always always good to hear. So, You brought up um, private data sets, which is an interesting um, wrinkle, although it should be on the forefront of everyone's mind if you're in the legal mm -hmm. industry and trying to use these tools. So in Atlanta, we share office space with um, someone who's been doing it far longer than we have. And he's very interested in exploring these new tools. <clears throat> but he has his reservations. For example, mm -hmm. the most common question I field from him is some version of, well, when I'm putting in a query, what if I want to include some privileged information to, to get some flavor of this? Right. Net, right? And he can't right. if it's the open chat GPT-4 because that whole system is kind of built on user inputs and everybody's building one big collective library versus my understanding from the terms and conditions of uh, Case Tech's co-counsel, mm -hmm. that is a private universe, so to speak, of data. I mean, the case law they put in there for you, the statutes they put in there, but anything else you're putting in an input stays within your bubble of a firm. And so it's protecting the work product and attorney-client privilege. But can you talk a little bit more about some of the use cases for private data sets and, and how you go about doing that? Yeah, Jordan, I'm glad you brought that up because we want to be careful pursuant to state bar rules, before, but pursuant to attorney-client privilege, attorney work product issues, what you put into these systems. Some are more secure than others. Even, even GPT-4 has a uh, an opt-out, more secure option that you can select, but you have to actually go into the settings and select it. We're very careful about what we put into the systems. So I'm glad you brought that up. Now, having said that, oftentimes you can put a hypothetical uh, uh, fact pattern or legal issue into these databases to get the responses that we're talking about. With, with respect to the private data sets, what we're doing is we've trained, for example, GPT-4 by uploading public deposition transcripts, uploading uh, law in motion points and authorities, by uploading the arguments of opposing counsel into a particular 
data set. And when you create a data set in GPT-4, there's actually a unique URL that you can copy and save. You can bookmark it to your favorites. So when you click that link, it takes you to that particular data set. Depending on the prompts and what you've put in there, you can limit your searches to, for example, the we'll label it master, the master data set, the contents within the data set so that it only delivers a response based upon what's in that particular data set. That's one way of doing it. And we're doing that with a particular case, a particular element of a case. We're doing that with, with, with um, uh, I'll show you real quick, just to give you an idea. I think I mentioned to you, we're, um, I'm in the process of transitioning into private mediation. I'm really excited about that. I've you know, been knocking heads and dropping gloves for 37 years. I love trying cases. But it's time at this point in my life to kind of take things sideways to a different direction. And so what I did is I've been mediating cases since 1991. I mean, this is a direct answer to your question, but I'm transitioning full time. Uh, the firm's still running full speed. Other lawyers will be handling the cases. I'll be mediating cases. But here's what we did. We took a, uh, a product and I can't think of the name of the product. I'll email you after today's show and I'll share the link with you. And what we did is we took all of our mediation blog posts and articles and internal research papers, uh, and we created a data set just on mediation. I then wrote this book, The Mediator's Handbook, Turning uh, Conflict into Collaboration. And it's basically a blueprint for how I'm going to be and am mediating cases, but also to help other mediators kind of move forward into today's Web3 world. There's a lot of new issues that mediators don't take into consideration. And we took the contents of this book and we also uploaded it into the same mediation data set. And so what happens is when somebody goes to this particular uh, search chatbot and they have a mediation or negotiation question, and by the way, we also imported literally 30 articles on negotiation, if they have a question, they can go into the chat box and they can ask a mediation or negotiation question. Everything from what is mediation to what are some of the best approaches to maximizing the outcome in my favor during a mediation. Or they can copy and paste a negotiation issue and ask the AI for different approaches to move forward during an impasse. And it's a 24-7 free chatbot. We made it public. It could have been private, just internally with the firm. But it's allow it allows lawyers to take existing data content and create private or public chatbots, either for internal use, maybe it's for internal research, or external marketing and branding. And I put this public chatbot on the front page of my mediation site at mitchjackson.com so consumers can go in, it's about halfway down the page, and they can type in their mediation and negotiation questions. And literally, it's every single you know, issue you can think of, the response can be found within that particular chatbot. Also, for marketing and branding purposes, and everyone here can do this, we put in our contact information. We put in the types of mediations that we want to focus on. So if someone types in, can you help me find a mediator in the state of California, or who in the United States can mediate Web3 blockchain and smart contract cases or which mediator in Orange County, California uh, has a lot of experience with catastrophic injury and personal injury cases, both on the plaintiff and defense side? 
guess whose information is going to pop up in the response? It's going to look into this particular data set. It's going to find our contact information, and it's going to share that with the person using the chatbot. So that's how we're using private data sets to you know, market, to brand, to add value to the consumer. And then we're also using this for deposition review. We're putting hundreds and hundreds of pages of public depositions into private chatbots, and we're using that as a search feature. And it's working really, really well. I love both of those use cases. And it, it makes me think of about a half dozen more that lawyers and law firms should probably start thinking about, for example, uploading orders from different judges in your jurisdiction that you're going to see a lot because if you get enough in that private data set, which is the universe of data these AI systems are reading and interpreting, then you can probably get to the point where it's generating predictive responses for how does this judge deal with this type of issue? Even mm. a modest one, like a motion to continue trial or flip side of that coin is uploading um, briefs and motions or responses to motions filed by particular law firms, right? I think lawyers might be a little niche, but I think the system could do it. But to say, hey, we have this issue going up against this law firm. What's their most like? You know, what's their position most likely to be? Ultimately, all of the filings in in Florida and Georgia, at least, are public record. I'd assume it's the same mm -hmm. in California, save for a few exceptions. So it's all out there. And I think the big dogs are going to eat this up eventually. You know, the Thomson yep. Reuters world and and West. Yep. But um, for now, there's still that opportunity for smaller businesses, law firms in particular, to build these data sets themselves, create that utility. And what you said earlier, it's not going to tell you a definitive answer that you can just say, this is it, I don't need to second guess it, but it's going to brainstorm a lot quicker and a lot more accurately than we are gonna do alone. Um, and I think that's a really remarkable tool. You know, I, I'm not Jordan, a brain when, when, when you say oh. quicker, when you say quicker, Instead of hours and days, we're talking literally seconds or minutes. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, let's put yeah. it into perspective. That's the yeah, power of it. Yeah. 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 When we, I think when we last spoke, we were also talking about, well, virtual reality is such a weird term because it's too broad. I don't know. Augmented reality, virtual reality. I don't really know where the line between the two is, but um, have you, I'm sure you put some more thought equity into it, but have you seen any more developers on the front of, uh, tools that could almost put jurors into a digital courtroom or have lawyers do mock trials in a courtroom? Well, with the with the new headsets, with the new technology, with the different ways the files are being created so that anybody can access these virtual spaces, I'll use the M word, the metaverse, for example. Um, it's allowing more people access to spaces because we have 5G, high, you know, high-speed Wi-Fi, because we have processors that can process uh, the technology, these companies, these platforms are allowing people with average uh, uh, components to access these new high-speed worlds. And for example, with the mediation services, in addition to about 95% of our mediations being via Zoom, right? Because everybody knows Zoom. And over the last three years, consumers and lawyers are, and judges are now comfortable with Zoom, just like what we're using right here. We also have virtual mediation rooms. So we have tech clients that uh, can opt into a traditional mediation conference room using their laptop, their desktop, their phone, or a headset. And I'm looking over at my headset sitting over there charging, and they can do the mediation from within these private conference rooms. And we use breakout rooms, just like you would in, in the real world. For example, as I, if I was representing the two of you, you would start off in a private breakout room. I'd have opposing counsel or the other side's insurance company in a separate breakout room 
I bounce back and forth between the rooms at your option. You may never even want to see the other side during the mediation process. So we're, we're using this old school approach of offline mediation, online in Zoom, and with virtual mediations. We've only done a couple of virtual mediations. They were successful, but I can just tell by the, the tone of the incoming inquiries. I can tell by people getting more comfortable with the ease and use of this technology. Virtual mediations are only going to increase in frequency as time progresses. And that's why we are definitely staying on top of this technology. I don't see us like we did two and a half, three years ago, purchasing 10 Oculus Quest 2s for our clients to definitely be a player in the web, in the metaverse space. I don't see us doing the same thing with the new Apple headset. It's cost prohibitive, but you know, I think it's important that we pay attention to these new technologies so that if a client reaches out to you and wants to you know, have an initial consultation with you in that digital sandbox, wants to do a virtual deposition, wants to have a virtual mediation or even a virtual trial down the road, uh, your firm is going to be positioned to do all the above. So, yeah, I'm not sure where the technology is going, but I am excited, you know, about putting in a he putting on a headset and, you know, you feel you feel like you're in the room. I feel like I'm, I'm standing right next to the two of you. It, it's something that until somebody experiences what virtual interactions are, it's hard to explain. It's like trying to give somebody a haircut over the telephone. It's, it's impossible to do. You have to put on a headset and you have to get involved. And I think from our clients, our tech clients, the money they're spending on these spaces, the money they're spending on Web3 and blockchain, smart contracts, NFTs, from a business standpoint, not artwork, um, that's the future. That's where mm -hmm. everyone's going. And you just don't hear about as many people talking about it because it's not the most popular topic right now. But I think that's where the money's being spent uh, because AI brings it all together. See, AI is going to be what everyone sees right now. AI is something that we can all bring into our current businesses, our practices. Uh, it's also going to make Web3 technology and virtual reality technology easier for all of us to use. It's all gonna come together probably in the next three to five years. I just hope I'm still around to, to witness and experience what this technology is gonna bring to our practices. Yeah, Mitch, you, you actually mentioned, cause there was actually, I had a couple of questions um, and you kind of answered some of them at the end. <clears throat> We've seen you, you talked about the Apple headset. I mean, that's I think it was the, it's the Vision Pro that there Apple and Meta is really making these headsets for working professionals. Um, I mean, you say it's cost prohibitive, and I know you talked about last time of giving the Oculus to your clients. But I mean, is that something that you envision maybe is what what's going to help really push Web 3.0 to the workforce by companies like Apple getting involved? Because like, look, Apple's been a you know kind of a trendsetter. Remember when they removed mm -hmm. the telephone jack? From the iPhone, the where you could plug in for the, um, the the headphones, right? And so, what did it do? It created an environment where they had to have better Bluetooth technology if you wanted to be a part of the Apple iPhone market. I mean, so so they have that influence, I think, in, in a market and in this space for them to come out and create their own um, headset, especially designed to tailored towards professionals. I mean, is that something you think that may? impact or grow the Web3 implementation in the workforce? 
I do. I do. I uh, I watched a show with Peter Diamandis, who's a uh, Harvard Stanford trained doctor scientist, uh, brilliant mind, and he was talking about you know back in the day. Uh, in one of these little babies in an iPhone, we had about uh, 900000 to a million dollars worth of technology value all placed eventually into this into this device. Mm-hmm. That's how much these this technology cost before the iPhone came along and development progressed. I see the same thing happening with all the technology we're talking about, right? A $4,000 headset will eventually be available for 150 bucks. It might even be given away for free. When you sign up like an iPhone, like a, like a smartphone, when you sign up for a plan, right? And it'll look more like um, a comfortable pair of, you know, Maui gym sunglasses, maybe a wraparound to, to, to take care of the light issues, as opposed to a full-on wearable headset that needs to be charged every three hours or you have to carry a battery in your pocket. Yeah, I see, I see everything continuing, continuing to progress such that consumer adaptation will substantially increase the comfortable being comfortable with technology and like we're talking about whether you're in the islands or i'm down on the sand Mm -hmm. we can literally try our cases if we want to at some point in the future you know uh while the surf's breaking the wind's in our face and our toes are in the sand i mean this technology is going to be there it's just going to you know come down to how comfortable are we as lawyers of embracing this technology and you know i think i mentioned before we went live I'm going to have the privilege of speaking at the upcoming Clio conference in Nashville in October. And I'm on the AI panel. We're going to be talking about AI and Web3 technology, what we're talking about right now. But I have a feeling that a lot's going to happen between today and the end of the year. And so what we're doing on a daily basis is we've subscribed to, you know, the different newsletters, the different websites. Uh, I have clients that are, you know, neck deep in these spaces, and we're just trying to be sponges. We're just trying to absorb as much as we can uh, with respect to, you know, what's real technology that's going to make change happen as opposed to hype, as opposed to a one and done type of idea. And we certainly haven't figured it out, but I will tell you that, uh, that uh, you know what we're talking about today is real. It's moving forward, and I'm excited to be a, a very small part of the whole process. Yeah, I think that you know, like a lot of like courts and judges, I think are more. Um, some of the old school judges, I think, are not as receptive mm-hmm. to the idea of new technology. I mean, some of them are like, "Well, I still want to see them standing before me in the courtroom," and you know. So, I, but I think that the. You know, the younger generation and some of the judges have been very receptive, right? They, they see the, the efficiency. And I, and I think what all that comes down to all new technology is, is efficiency. You know, there was a point in time, I forget who was talking about it, where like they used to farm fields by hand, right? And then they developed tools right. and then right. the, the machines and that came along. And that's not how they did it anymore because why? It was more efficient to do it with better technology. And so I think that a lot of this is going to be geared towards creating efficient processes. I mean, I, your, your discussion mm-hmm. about AI doing your template letters, I mean, you know, myself and Jordan, really more Jordan, we've wrote them ourselves. And if you can plug them in and then they can write you a better one, I mean, that, that how efficient can you be? Like, put this together, questions I need to ask, and, you know, to save us time. And that's really what I think all of this comes down to is <clears throat> making our life better. And so as you put it, Mitch, having a better customer client experience because of what we're able to do and focus on. And if I can eliminate a lot of the time that I spend, I don't want to, you know, in a certain project, it gives me more time focusing on 
that preparation, the you know the work done for the client to give them a better result. So I think that's where it's all going. I do think it's a lot of the judiciary may be unreceptive, but we do a lot of work outside right. of courts, right? Between us litigants, and you know, so you know, it's it's interesting to see as that as technology grows and it, it develops further. You know, it's almost like what's going to happen next, right? We've seen it grow so fast. I mean, what's going to come out next? I mean, you know, Jordan and I have been working. We've got something in the works that, you know, that'll be coming out in the future. There'll be some marketing about that that's going to make our job even easier. You know, so it's... Really? It's, really? Yeah, we can't... All right, can't, we we heard it here, everyone. We heard, should I cross-examine you right now? Or no, 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 no. No, all, all we can, all we can say is that one of the largest uh, companies in the information space developed a tool that they did not see an application for in our industry it pertains mm. to reading and interpreting medical records. And we're going to, we are the first law firm in the country that they're giving a, access to that technology. So we I just need it. to iron out some, uh, some wrinkles and then we're going to do a whole big uh, press campaign about it. See, I love the fact you're, you guys are giving yourselves permission to try out this new stuff, to take time, to spend energy and to see if something works. And that's what this is all about. So before we went live, I was showing you guys this little picture up here. It was a 1994 case. It's before technology was being used in the courtroom, mm -hmm. right? And and about two years after this case, well, probably about five years after that case, I was setting up getting ready to do an opening statement. And it was the morning break, and I had a laptop. And it wasn't PowerPoint, but it was something like PowerPoint. And I was getting ready to use all of that to compliment my opening. And the judge and I were the only ones in the courtroom. I'm setting it up. And he goes, Mr. Jackson, what is that on your desk? Well, that's it's a laptop, Your Honor. I'll be using it. You're not using that in my courtroom. Mm. You know, to your point, John, John, you're not using that in my courtroom. What, what is this, right? What is this magical thing? Fast forward to today, from when that case happened to that experience I just described, if you walk into a courtroom today and there's not massive technology taking place, especially in the big cases, yeah. you know, it's like there's something wrong. It's yeah. probably malpractice. We're probably trying a case, you know, below the standard of care. Same thing's going to happen with all the technology we're talking about right now. It may be five or 10 years out, but there's going to come a point in time where there's going to be, you know, some poor lawyer on cross-examination at the receiving end of a, of a legal malpractice case, being asked questions like, did you use AI to double check your work, to do mm -hmm. your research, to help you prepare for your deposition, to help you prepare your opening statement? At some point in time, I see this happening. And if you're not complying with that standard of care, it may come back to bite you in the butt. Now, having said that, that's way down the road. Right. Having said that, I don't know about you guys, but I have a lot of judges trying to get me to try cases over Zoom during COVID. And that's not the way I roll, okay? I need to be in the courtroom. I need to look at the body language. I need for them to see me and how I act and how I move. And all of these things just don't happen over Zoom using today's technology. So we respectfully decline the opportunity to try big cases over Zoom. But 10 years from now, maybe it'll be the norm. 20 yeah. years from now, maybe virtual headsets in, in the metaverse, virtual realities might be the norm. I don't know. But uh, it sure is convenient. Well, Where I think do you do know. It? You just don't know when. I, I uh, think you don't know when, things, right? Some things are inevitable. I mean, we can innovation mm -hmm. is an amorphous term because we don't know how far it reaches. But I think right. those types of applications, where like remote proceedings of all kinds becoming in, institutionalized and and expected, I think that's inevitable. I I, yeah. I just don't think we can hold on to the inefficiencies of brick and mortar in all contexts forever. 
But John's question about, you know, the judges, the judiciary getting behind new technology, because so much of it is we think through our own lenses, how can this help me in my own practice of law? I think the way we get judges more excited is to show them the ways these very same tools can be a benefit for them. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, I was talking to uh, a lawyer who's retired, but he's friendly with a lot of judges. And we, we were talking about this same issue. And I said to him, I wonder how long it takes for a small collective of judges to start using GPT-4 and private data sets to act as their own metaverse magistrate of sorts, to give them rough drafts of rulings, rough drafts of opinions, because they don't have the time to read through, at least not in Florida. I mean, they're so backlogged with what we call motion calendar, you know, routine discovery disputes or whatever. They're just one human, yeah. right? How much can they possibly do? How much can a law clerk really solve that or bridge that gap? So I think when the tools get good enough and trustworthy enough, we're going to start seeing judges lean on that. You know, I don't do criminal defense work anymore, but when I did, you know, in federal court, and this is, I'm exaggerating for this, the sake of discussion, but I'd say probably 50% of what judges are doing, it feels like are sentencing hearings and looking at the sentencing guidelines and determining plus two, minus one, what's a good rank. That to me is right. like a perfect fit for a private data set to say, here's the actual data about this particular defendant who's now changed his or her plea to guilt. Here's what the uh, you know pre-sentence investigation report from the probation office says. Here's what the guidelines say. Put this all together. Give me a recommended sentence. Now, they could do that privately in chambers, but now they have some, they can glean some first instance and then say, all right, now let me put my experience on this and see. And all of that, I think, will allow the bench to start adopting this much more rapidly than if it's just lawyers celebrating how great it is for their private practice. That doesn't help them, right? I'm, I'm with you. And imagine the technology, and this is what I think is going to happen, is I think once we have global or national data sets on different you know, legal areas or industries, what's going to happen is the parties will be able to voluntarily opt into an AI resolution. In other words, you put in your case facts, uh, the AI analyzes you know, every case that's ever existed that's relevant as to that set of facts uh, with respect to what the damages or, or desired outcome is by both parties. And literally within 30 seconds, within five seconds, within 10 seconds, it's going to spit out a resolution. Like this is what's going to happen 99 times out of 100 if you try this case. I see parties actually stipulating into these processes to save time, to save money, and to get quick and public and or private results. Uh, when the Andy Warhol Supreme Court case came down, I took that 90-page Supreme Court decision, put it into uh, a chat GPT for data set that we trained. And then what we did is we took the appellate version of the Jack Daniels case that was the next IP case coming up. We took that appellate transcript, we put it in, and we asked GPT-4, based upon the court's rationale in the Andy Warhol case, based upon the legal theories, based upon the justices' um, prior decisions, what do you think, I'm paraphrasing, but what do you think is going to happen with Jack Daniels' case? I shared the results in, in my LinkedIn feed, you know, last month. The answer was spot on. It got it right. The finding that GPT-4 came out with in its response was how the Supreme Court ruled in the Jack Daniels case. I mean, there's a good real-time example, Jordan, of you know, rather than us, we can speculate all day long as to what might happen, but it comes to a point in time where AI will be more consistently correct in its output on these different issues. Um, I had someone tell me, you know, there was a case where the lawyer cited fictitious 
uh, case sites in support of their motion in, in a court of law. And you guys know more about that case than I do. And they were, um, you know, uh, inaccurate sites. They were, they mm -hmm. were sites. What's the word I'm thinking of guys. They were, uh, they were fake. Mm -hmm. they, they were made. They were just made up. But there's a word, there's a term that everyone's using in the AI world, not oh. hypothetical. Uh, oh, there's a term know. that people are using to, to, to inaccurate results. Okay. okay. And anyway, they weren't real. Um, and, uh, I, I had that happen. Okay. I, I shared this a couple of weeks ago. So it's been about a month ago. I'm standing in open court opposing counsel in good faith was citing bad law to the court during oral argument. One of the cases he cited had been overruled. It wasn't even a valid case anymore. And it was, it was wrong. And we won that, that, that law in motion hearing. Um, okay. that lawyer is probably more focused on going out and, and, and playing 18 holes of golf you know, the next day, then he or she or they are in getting better and improving their research capabilities at their law firm, because I've seen them make the same mistakes more than once. AI instead will continue to improve and continue to get better. And it's not worrying about its T-op time. It's worrying about delivering better, more high quality and accurate results. Those are the two paths. That's why I'm a firm believer that AI and the legal profession <clears throat> is, is simply going to complement everything we're doing and make us better lawyers, more efficient lawyers, and it's going to create new opportunities. Mm -hmm. It's going to allow us new opportunities to help help either more clients in new and different ways or to help our existing clientele in better ways, and, and so I'm all in on it. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the term, Mitch, because we, we've got Justin here who can look stuff up pretty quick, but there's like machine learning bias or algorithm bias that, that tends or they give you like a false negative. That's what they're kind of some of the terms they throw around. It's like an AI yeah. bias where it's a phenomenon that occurs where the AI system based upon the way it's done still does something incorrectly or has erroneous assumptions so that in the machine learning process so that's kind of i prefer the phrase bullshit you know we don't have to get we don't have to reinvent what we already know it's coming it's coming up with fake results but yeah. I, I have I, i'm excited every time we talk mitch i'm left with a, a renewed sense of optimism about um all the potential benefits because when i speak to people like you i, I gather from you and i'm excited to hear how the clio conference goes maybe i'll see you up there um that'd be great yeah definitely I, make it yeah I'm, I'm excited because people like you are not just eager to try new technology, but you're also, you deeply appreciate the risks involved with it. And you're trying to, you know, you're trying to sprint, but you recognize it's a marathon. So you're pacing yourself, still trying to, you know, be the, uh, the pace setter, but also not getting too far ahead of yourself, too far ahead of your skis, you know, where you can, where you can fall and cause havoc. So I think that's the responsible way to go about it. We're trying to do the same thing here at our firm. And I think for mm -hmm. any listener out there, if this is even just like you've been hearing things, or maybe you see things on LinkedIn, please, Please give Mitch a follow on all of his social channels. Um, it's a you know you, you're a wealth of knowledge and you're really current. So um, thank you. No better person to follow in the space than you. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it. Uh, Jordan, thank you. John, thank you. Really appreciate being here, guys. And once again, success on on all the good things you're doing for your for your clients and the local community. Man, amazing job. I'm impressed. Thanks, Mitch. You know we we work thank hard you. and. You know, hopefully that, you know, we can implement more of this technology to even do a better job, you know, so I appreciate it. Like, yeah. like, to, like Jordan said, always great to have you on your energy and, and wealth and knowledge is great. And so we deeply appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Take All care. Right. See you, everyone. All right.
There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth shall set you free! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Great moments are born from great opportunities.